Thank you so much. It really is a, a pleasure and an honor to be here. Like Tom said, my name is Kenny Cluett, my wife is Marta, um, and we are global. I really like that title. Um, but w- what it really means is that, um, at least for me, that I'm constantly in exile. I, I never really know where I belong. And there's something really hard about that, but there's something really powerful about it too, because you're longing, constantly longing for home, constantly longing for a place to be. Um, and for these two years, Christ Community is our home. And I just wanted to thank you for that as a church, for investing um, time, money, energy, food, <laughs> in people like us and leaders that God is raising up to send to his church, not just here, but globally as well. So thank you for that. Um, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Now, like, like Tom said, we're kicking off the series for Advent this year. Um, this is really exciting for me because I've never actually done like the four weeks of Advent. Uh, for some reason in Spain, evangelicals don't do that. I think it's because Catholics do it and we think they're evil, um, which is untrue, but... It's, it's, but it's, it's really a joy to kind of recover this church tradition together, not just pretend that we're alone in the world, that we invented church for ourselves, but that we're part of this history of what God's been doing for a long time. So I'm, I'm super excited about doing Advent with you. And the series that we're kicking off is titled, What a Strange Way to Save the World. And the, the reason we've called it that is we started looking as a pastoral team into the book of Luke, into chapters one and two, trying to rediscover, reread the story of Christmas as if it was the first time. And some of you are saying, that's impossible to do. I just walked into the mall and I heard those stupid, I mean, those wonderful Christmas songs already, (laughs) right? But I want to encourage us to actually try to not erase what we have in our mind, but try to press in to the story of Christmas, to really press in and say, what's so special about this story? What's so unique about this story? Um, And one of the reasons we want to do that is because this is the story on which our faith is based, and we should know it pretty well. Um, So what we're doing is actually looking through Luke, and a good reason to look through the book of Luke is he wrote to people very similar to us. We heard this in the introduction, right? He said, um, this is for you, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you had been taught, that you have certainty concerning the things you had been taught. What this means is Luke is writing to a community. Theophilus is is probably the guy who's who's either paying for these books to be written or just a prominent member of the community. And he's writing to them saying, you've already heard something about the faith. You've already met Christians, for good or for evil. You've met Christians. You've seen stuff that's happened. You've heard the story, just like us, right? We've heard the Christmas story. We've heard the faith. But I want to write this book to give you certainty for the things you've been taught. And that's what we want to do this morning and over the next four weeks, to gain certainty in what we have been taught, to hear the story and hear the strangeness about it, but also start understanding what's, what's not so strange about this. So we say, okay, certainty. Everyone wants certainty about our faith, right? But then Luke starts with this story, right? I I don't know if you were listening well to the reading of Scripture, but this is a strange story. I mean, let's think about that. Let's let's place this for a second. First, we're in the historical context of Israel um, near, I don't know, near the year uh, 30 B.C., 40 B.C., um, and the, the people are waiting for God to appear. Remember last week, those who were here, we ended the book of Habakkuk, and what did Habakkuk say at the very end? His, his, his nation was about to be conquered, and he looked out and he said to God, remember, this is in Habakkuk 3.16, he says, I hear, I hear what your words are, I hear what you're going to do, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So this is where Israel is, they're waiting and wait, they did. 
they waited for over 400 years. And in fact, even after Israel was exiled and came back, a prophet spoke, and then God was silent for 400 years. Israel's waiting. We see this in the, in, even in the story that we heard, right? The people are outside the temple waiting for the priests to go in and hear from God. Maybe this year God will speak to us. Maybe this year God will deliver. And then you have this wonderful couple in this story, don't we? Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke says um, they were blameless in their ways. They were righteous. They were faithful. Yet, the one thing that society requires of a good couple, a child, they didn't have. They were waiting, and they were old. They'd probably started to give up, saying, well, maybe God won't remember us at the end. And then you have Zechariah, this poor guy. I mean, you have to feel for him, don't you? He's a priest on the most important day of his life. I mean, you have to think about this. There are so many priests in Israel, some say around 20,000, that they divided them into divisions. So he's the division of Abijah or Abijah, or depending what, however you want to pronounce it. Um, but he, he's part of this division, so he gets to serve only every once in a while, only every few years he gets to serve. And then out of the best priests, out of the most honorable ones, they throw lots to choose one who's going to represent all the people of Israel, and he'll go into the holy place, this quiet room where all these, like all the great things happen in there, right? And he goes in there, and he's representing all the people. He does this ceremony before God, and then he comes out and he blesses the people. So this for a priest, this is the best day in his history. This is the best day in his life. This is like the Oscar ceremony for priests, right? Um, and I can't, I can't help but feeling for this guy because, you know, as a, pastors aren't priests. I know that. But there's something similar in what's going on, right? I mean, imagine for me, I, I spend months or years or, or, or weeks at least preparing a sermon to, to deliver before real honorable people, maybe even people like you, right? And, and I'm getting ready and I take all my notes, right? And I, and I sit down and I'm I'm just about to deliver, and I'm ready. I'm ready for my moment of glory, uh, God's moment of glory, I mean. But, you know, we, we want to be there. And, um, and I'm getting ready in the back room or, or maybe in the bathroom, depending how nervous I am, um, right? And, and in that silence, getting ready before God, saying, God, please give me the words. God shows up, just like this angel, right? Boo! <laughs> hey! And, and, and he promises me, Kenny, you're going to be a really happy man. Um, your life's going to be great. And I say, really, how is that going to happen? Boom, silence. And I get up on stage. And, I mean, can you imagine this? For me, it's a nightmare. I know for some of you, this is your dream every Sunday, right? <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, this, this is what's happening to poor Zechariah, right? He's in this room. He's getting ready, and this angel appears. And I mean, the poor guy, he, he was old. He probably had a heart attack, and the angel had to revive him, if, if you think about it. And he, he gives him this crazy news. Right? He says, you're, you're, you're going to have a child. The, the prayer that you've been praying forever is going to be answered. And Zechariah asks what seems to be an innocent, clarifying question. He says, well, how, how will I know this? And the angel says, well, now you're going to be silent. That's what you get. I mean, God, really? Is this the story we're starting out with? Is this the Christmas story? Is this the good news? I mean, think, think about this for a second. Was Zechariah expected to just blindly believe whatever the angel told him? I mean, was he or, or, or are we expected just to acquiesce to whatever some crazy preacher tells us? Whatever an angel, a prophet, or a preacher tells us to believe? Is that what Christianity is? A mindless religion where we're just expected to believe whatever a shining angel tells us? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's what this story is about. But rather with this story, I think Luke is trying to show us something really, really important of how we're supposed to prepare to believe 
how we're supposed to prepare for God to do surprising things, what we need to know about God so that when he does surprise us, we can believe. Um, A way of putting this, it's kind of an interpretive grid or maybe even a paradigm for belief. This is something Luke is giving us and saying, this is what we need to do to prepare to believe. We can't force ourselves to believe. No one can do that. That's stupid. But we can prepare to believe what God is going to do. And here's what the interpretive grid is. This is what Luke is saying. He's saying God is always surprising. God is always surprising, but he's never inconsistent. God is always surprising, but he's never inconsistent. And maybe a, a way of putting this, it's, it's almost like a pair of 3D glasses. Now, hopefully most of you have been to some 3D film. Um, and what happened with the 3D film, right, if you don't have the glasses on, you kind of see these images. You can more or less make out what's happening, um, but, but it's not really clear and it makes you kind of dizzy. And then you put the glasses on, right? And suddenly everything becomes clear. In fact, it almost becomes real. And this is, this is what this interpretive grid is. It's kind of like putting on 3D glasses and saying, oh, that's what God's doing. Oh, this is God. I can believe because this is God. So he's showing us what are the consistencies of God. And this morning I want to point out from this story three consistencies, three things that are always consistent with God's story. Um, and and to, to give us these glasses to prepare to believe, to prepare to see God's surprising story this Christmas. So here's the three consistencies. Here's the first. God always works through history. God always works through history. This is the first consistent thing we know about God is that he works in and through our space and time categories. Um, As the song said before, he condescends to us and works in a way that we can see, that we can touch, that we can measure up to a point. It's not saying God is seen and measurable and touchable necessarily. It's saying that God works in a way that we can see, touch, we can remember. And Luke establishes this in his introduction. Um, if you haven't yet, please turn to Luke chapter 1, if you do have a Bible, because we're going to be looking through this. But in his introduction, notice what Luke says. Um, in chapter 2, he says, just as the, sorry, verse 2, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So he's saying, I'm listening to the people that saw this. I'm listening to those who are eyewitnesses who have been around from the beginning. And he tells us he's followed these accounts closely, right? And he's ordered them in a way for for it to make sense to us. And then the story begins, right? In verse five. And it doesn't begin in once upon a time in a faraway land, right? Or more relevant today, right? A long time ago in a galaxy far away. Um, But rather, look at how it begins in verse five. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is a very specific political geographical reference. People could check this. People could know this is true. And then, in case that wasn't enough, he starts giving us all these names, right? And for us, it's a little confusing, because, you know, we're about 2,000 years away. We have no idea how to check out if Zechariah was a real guy or Elizabeth. But Luke's writing around the year 60 AD, which means maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth weren't alive, but their children and their family members and the people around them were alive. People knew who Herod was. They had memories of him. People knew about all these names that we're going to hear. They could check it. You don't write down names of people that you can talk to in a story if you want to make it up, right? History is important to God. God works through history. And in fact, Luke isn't here spiritualizing history. He's not saying, hey, these regular things that happened, they were actually spiritual things. But rather, um, he's giving historical data to help a community understand their present spiritual experience. Let me repeat that. Luke is not spiritualizing history but he's giving historical data to help a community understand their present spiritual experience. He's writing to an early church that's beginning to, um, to, to, to be persecuted. They're beginning to see things that no one has seen before. 
And he's saying, you see all this surprising growth in the church despite persecutions? You see all this change in society? Slaves are being freed. People are giving their lives away, sometimes literally for others. Families are being reconciled. Races that had never gotten along are coming together. And Luke is saying, this is because something real happened. Something real happened pretty recently, and this changed everything. This changes everything for us. That's what Luke's doing here. The theologian and historian N.T. Wright stresses the importance of this relationship between history and faith. He says, history prevents faith from becoming fantasy. History prevents faith from becoming fantasy. That's Luke right here. But then he turns around and says, faith prevents history become mere antiquarianism. In other words, the experience of the past actually affects our present. And as we look back to the past, we need that history for our present to be real and not just fantasy. But it's not just a history of the past that we look into and say, oh, that was interesting. That was cool. So history is important to God. God always works through history. And this Advent, as we put on our 3D glasses, right? Um, And this may be a hard metaphor to follow. I apologize. But let's imagine this for a second. We put on our 3D glasses. I want to challenge all of us to take this story seriously. During this Advent, if there's one thing I want to challenge you to do this morning, is take this story seriously. Study it. Look at it. Um, you, may, you may believe it. You may think it's, it's actually a pretty straightforward story. Well, read it again. You should be shocked by this story. It should be strange. It should be surprising. And maybe it's too surprising, too strange for you, and you're having trouble believing. Look at it well. Look at the history. Study this. Think about it. Listen for the God who works through history. Expect him to surprise you in your time and in your space. So the first thing we learn about God in this story The first consistency of God is God always works through history. But it's not just history in general. The second consistency of God we see is God is always advancing his story. God is always advancing his story, his story that began with the Garden of Eden. When people turned away from God and God said, one day the offspring of the woman is going to rise up and he's going to smash the head of the serpent. One day I'm going to renew the right relationship with my people. This is God's story from the beginning a story bringing redemption and salvation to his people and the entire world. And Luke is making, this is probably the most, the biggest point Luke is making here is saying, this story here, what's happening to Zechariah, it's connected with what God's been doing forever, with what what, what God's been doing from the beginning. And let me just point this out to you with two um, areas. First, he points this out in the process. The process of what's going on here mirrors and parallels what's happened throughout the Old Testament, and secondly, in the promise. But first, let's look at this process, the process that mirrors or that images what God's been doing throughout history. Now, one of the major things that God does, um, and, and you know this, we've heard enough Old Testament stories for this, right? One of the major things that God does, one of the marks of God's moving in history is bringing life from what is lifeless, is bringing life from where there is no life. And many times this is done literally with a woman who's barren, who can't have children, who's dead inside and God brings life to that. Now, before I get into this, I do want to say something. God doesn't always do this this way. Barrenness is not a curse. It's not a punishment on women or on couples. Rather, as we will even see in this story, um, it's the people, it's society, it's us around these women that makes barrenness a reproach on women. It's society that makes barrenness a reproach on women. All 40% of women in the world that have problems or have a serious difficulty to have children. That's a big percentage. Um, In God's view, an individual woman's identity is not tied up 
with whether she has a child or not. It's tied up with her relationship with him. Barrenness is not a curse. And that's not what this text is saying. That's not what the Old Testament is saying. But rather what it's saying is God sometimes chooses to do this miraculous, amazing, mysterious thing of bringing life from where there is no life. And that's what he does in this story. And if we remember in the Old Testament, there's so many examples of this. One of the major examples is Abraham and Sarai, his wife. Um, right? And, and let me just draw, we don't have time to look through this. This is in Genesis 11 to 17. But let me just quickly draw out some of the parallelisms. And the way Luke is ordering this story is, is, is made for us to see that. It's made for us to see, oh, this sounds like Abraham. And this sounds like Sarai, Sarai or Sarah. I don't know how to say that in English. Sarai is how he's saying it. In, in a proper language. Sorry about that. Um, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, but let me, let me just walk through this. First, Abraham and Sarai, I don't know if you remember, they were righteous and they walked blamelessly before the Lord. Same language is used. Secondly, they were old. Remember that? They were old and advanced in years. She was barren. She wasn't able to have a child and that was something heavy on her heart. The Lord promises them a child and gives this child a name. He doesn't let them name their child. Remember that? He says, this is what you're going to name your child. Like Zechariah, Sarai had a hard time believing it. And God promises this child not just for their personal joy, but to bless those beyond their family and beyond their people. And as we'll see in a few weeks, both promises are fulfilled. Do you hear that? God's story. God's story. It's happening again. God's moving again. But in addition to the story, in the promise that the angel gives, we see all the signs of God moving. And I want to show you this in in the Bible. So if you have a Bible... Turn back maybe 50, 60 pages to the last two verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, okay? This is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. If you have an electronic device, do that. But keep your finger in Luke if you can. Just turn back. It's right at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi is, is probably the last prophet um, that Israel ever had. He's, these are probably the last words, literally, that were spoken through a prophet to the people of God um, for 400 years. And listen to what he says. Malachi, is, they'd come back from exile. They'd rebuilt the temple and the city in Malachi saying, but this isn't the final pro- promise. This isn't the end of this chapter. God's going to write a new chapter, but before he writes that, this is what's going to happen. Let's read it. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what he's promising here, he's saying before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before I come and change everything, I need to send an announcer. I need to send a forerunner. Um, uh, maybe a, a, a way of understanding this for those who are Downton Abbey fans or addicts, um, or, or those who aren't, <laughs> there's, there is, is to think of kind of a royal reception party, right? When, when, when a royal person's gonna come, back in that old land that they call Europe that, you know, none of us care about. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, this, sometimes we, we'd invite, um, uh, well, we'd invite, someone would invite like a royalty to come to a party, right? But for that to happen, there had to be someone who's preparing the party and making sure that everything is right so they can announce this, this magnificent guest. In Downton Abbey, we all know this is Mr. Carson, the butler, um, right? And he has to make sure everyone, all the food's set up well and, and everyone's dressed properly and standing in the right place and silent when they need to be silent. And t- this tends to be a gruff kind of man. Um, and, and at one point, when everything's just right, he goes to the door, right? And he says, ladies and gentlemen, the Prince of Wales, or, you know, whatever the royalty is. 
and the whole party changes. Suddenly that party has actually started because the key guest is in. And the butler kind of disappears after that, doesn't he? Because the, the, the real guest is there. And this is what God's saying. He's saying, I, I'm sending a forerunner. I'm sending an announcer to come. And he's, he's going to prepare the way. He's going to prepare you to look, to look at that door rightly, to not look at yourself, but to be ready for when I come. He says, and if I don't send this forerunner, look at that last line. He says, I, I'll have to come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And this is exactly the same prophecy that's being given, the same promise that's being given to Zechariah, right? There's a few other things going on, but let me just point this out. Um, let's look at the verses 16 and 17. Listen to what the angel says to Zechariah. He's announcing the son. He's announcing this person that's going to be set apart, kind of like a priest. Um, he, he's not going to drink. He's not going to cut his hair because he's going to be set apart for people. And he says this. Let's read 16 and 17. He says, he will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. You hear that same language, the hearts of the children back to their fathers, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared to him. It's almost the exact same words, isn't it? Zechariah was a priest. He should have heard this and said, yes, God, yes, that's your plan. It's starting again. This is awesome, right? He should have said, oh, finally, you're preparing us. Oh, let, 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 let's come together as a people. Let's repent before the Lord. I mean, that's what he was doing in his prayer. He was, he was praying for the people. He should have been ready for the Lord. But he wasn't. And this is the ironic thing. God is announcing a forerunner, and the father who's going to raise that forerunner isn't even ready for the forerunner. You know what I mean? Like, he, he's, he's saying, you're going to be the preparer. The guy said, well, I'm not prepared for this yet. This guy... <laughs> And, and, and this, is, this is the surprising part of this story, perhaps. Um, and let me, let me just show you how this comes out. Because you may say, well, I don't know if that's what Zechariah is doing. Listen to his response. He's not saying, God, I'm excited about this. I'm ready to do this. But what he asks, listen to this. Let's look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, after hearing this great news, he says, how shall I know this? Right? For I am old. I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel sees right through his question. Zechariah isn't asking how this is going to happen. He's asking how he can know it. He's telling God, how, what can you give me so I don't look like a fool when I go home and tell my wife she's going to have a child? When I go out to these people and tell them, hey, I had a vision from God, I'm going to have a child, and he's going to bless you all. How do I know, how do I know that I'm not going to look like a fool? He's not trusting the author of the story. He's not seeing the marks of the author of the story. Look how the angel answers. He says in verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you the good news. Behold, you will be silent. In other words, I'm calling the shots here, buddy. I'm telling the story. You need to listen better. You need to be better prepared to hear what I'm doing. Turn from yourself and look to me for the gift. Turn from yourself and look to me um, for the gift. And this is what I want to ask us this morning. How about us? In the middle of the noise of the holidays, are we listening to God's story? Or are we just concerned about what we're going to get, how we're going to make it through this season? Have we taken time to repent from, being, from looking inward and instead looking upward to God 
Children looking to our parents, parents looking to our children, brothers and sisters looking to one another, coming together to prepare as one people for God to come. Are we repenting and listening to God? But as we do this, as we repent, it's not just that God's moving his story along. It's not just that God's doing this cosmic story. There's one more characteristic of God that we must remember. One more thing that's always part of his surprising work, and it's this. God is always good to us. God is always good to us. God is always good to us. Now, did you notice the beautiful words at the end of this text? It's basically a quote from Elizabeth, probably one of the eyewitnesses that Luke had interviewed. It, it literally is, is kind of framed as a quote in the Greek. It's like he's writing and then says, look what Elizabeth says. Let, let's read it. This is verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. This statement comes from the deepest depths of the heart, doesn't it? From the deepest disappointment. Saying, God, you remembered me. In the midst of God's cosmic plans to save the world, he blesses Elizabeth in such a personal and intimate way. She even has to go away and hide herself, overwhelmed with this incredible gift of God to her. And you see, Zechariah too, in the promise, you may recall, the angel says to him, you personally are going to have joy and gladness in this child. He says, also, many will rejoice at his birth, but you personally are going to have joy and gladness. As God moves cosmically and changes history and moves everything around, he also remembers his people individually and does good to them. This is our God. This is the consistency of God throughout his story. God works good for those who are willing to receive his gift in ways that go beyond our wildest dreams. God works good for those who are willing to receive his gift. And for a lot of us this morning, this is probably the hardest thing to believe. Often it's because we're aware of our inadequacy, right? We feel the shame and the guilt of not performing well before God. And we think, well, yeah, theoretically God's good and, and he'll be good to us, but to me, I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think he can do that. I think I'm a little too messed up. And maybe for others it's not, it's not guilt. It's not shame. There may be some of that, but you say, no, I, I know God's beyond that. Maybe it has more to do with disappointment. Once you believe that God could be good, but then he didn't come through the way you expected And maybe you're not angry. Maybe you're not even bitter to God. Maybe you're still faithful because God's worth it. But there's, you've just given up a bit on the idea that he will actually, in fact, be good to the end. You're starting to give up on the idea that God will actually remember me. And you know, for Zechariah, this was probably the situation. This was probably the hardest thing for him to believe. He was a man acquainted with disappointment. Would God remember us? Does God remember me? But he didn't give up, did he? Zechariah was faithful. Luke points that out a few times. He remained hopeful even though that hope was fading and insufficient to receive God's gift when it came. He had some hope. It wasn't enough, but he had some hope. And here's the beauty of the story. Here's the beauty of the gospel, friends. God meets Zechariah and Elizabeth in their faithfulness. He doesn't meet them because of their faithfulness, but he meets them in their faithfulness. We will never, ever be absolutely faithful enough to deserve God's favor. We know that. 
But in their faithfulness, as we serve, as they served, God appears to them and says, I have answered your prayers. I've answered your prayers as a people. I've answered your prayers as individual. And Zechariah tries to get his head around this, right? He says, but how do I know, how do I know you're really answering my prayers? How, do I, how can I figure this out? And God gives him a gift. He gives him the discipline of silence. You see, the silence imposed on Zechariah wasn't a way of punishment from belief. That's true. But it was actually better than that. It was a discipline. It was a gift of discipline. This was the exact thing Zechariah needed to receive God's prayers. He needed to be quieted and calmed in his soul. And like a weaned child, as the psalm says, to look to God and receive his good gift. He needed to stop to repent, to listen, to receive. He needed God to give him the gift and the discipline of silence, to hear well and to receive well God's greatest gift. And this is the picture of the gospel that Luke is presenting to us before we get to Jesus even. From the very beginning, this is what God wanted and commanded Israel, right? Remember this in Deuteronomy 6? Hear, O Israel, hear, listen, O Israel, your God is one. The Lord your God is one. Love him with all your heart, your mind, your strength. How do you love him? You listen to him and you love him. You see him, you respond to him. We're not creating a belief. We're listening and responding to who he is. But Israel wasn't capable of listening. The world is not ready for God's gift of himself, despite our attempts to reach God through religion and service. You and I were not ready to receive God's gift, even though we've tried to reach him and tried to make him happy. Our acts of service Our faithfulness, it's important, but it's not in the last instance what earns God's goodness. God gives his goodness freely. He sent his son freely. His son came with his own accord, not because of us, but because he wanted to come, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death we should have died, and to raise again, to make a path for us to have a right relationship with the Father. None of our words, none of our actions could explain or achieve this gift. It is in silence. It's in a posture of humble defeat that he prepares us to receive his gift. In silence, we sit before God and understand that he is God and that he is good. There we remember that he has already given us the best gift of all, his son for our salvation, his presence for our empty lives. This is what we should be giving thanks for these holidays. Above anything else, the fact that he listened to us, he remembered his people, And he extended his invitation to become part of his people to the whole world. This is what we celebrate this Christmas. This is what we celebrate this Christmas. So let me end with this. This Advent, as we listen for this God, who's always surprising but never inconsistent, let's engage actively in the discipline of silence. Not to earn God's goodness, but to let him train us to receive his gifts well. So in the midst of the loud joy that some of us are getting excited for these holidays, take a moment each day and sit in silence before him. Confess that the family and gifts that surround you are not your doing. Remember the greatest gift of all, his son for you. In the midst of the heavy sadness that this season brings to many others, take a moment each day and sit in silence before him. Remember that God is good to you. Look at the ultimate proof he gave for his goodness, his own son for your sins, for your sorrow, and let him somehow, inexplicably, mysteriously, bring out his joy through your pain. In the midst of your difficulty to believe this story, 
Take a moment each day and sit in silence before him. Ask God to surprise you and expect it through history in the form of his story and for your good. Put on your 3D glasses and let him make his story real to you. In fact, as we go to this season, let us all do that. Let us all pray that God would surprise us and sit in silence to listen to, you, to that. Because after all, God is always surprising, but never inconsistent. Now, before I, I pray, what we want to do this morning is actually practice this discipline of silence together um, for two minutes. I think we can do that. It may be difficult, but I think we can do that. So I want to encourage us. I'm going to pray for us. And then after that, I'd like us to just take two minutes and just sit silently and say, God, reveal yourself to me. Show me your story. And then we'll end singing some songs of praise to him. All right? Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for our unbelief. And now, speak to us as we sit before you. Surprise us, God, with your story, with your goodness. Remind us of who you are and who you will always be.